Alice could breathe. Somewhere under those bushes was the rest of Ray Brower. The train had knocked Ray Brower out of his keds, just like it had knocked the life out of his body. The kid wasn't sick. The kid wasn't sleeping. The kid was dead. Let's look for some long branches. We'll build them a stretcher. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast. It is The Fear of God. I am Nathan Rouse, one of your hosts. Now, typically with me is old pal would walk across a railroad track suspended high above water with me, Guy Reed Lackey. You know, he was with me a minute ago, but he said he had to go research who would win in a fight between Mighty Mouse and Superman. Uh, So, you know, I'm actually kind of curious what his research yields. So we'll give him a minute. Get, get get the old Google going. In the meantime, if you would be so kind, if you've enjoyed this podcast here for one episode or 150 episodes, um, we'd love it if you have not done this, if you would please go leave a review or leave a rating, five star, of course. Um, it'd be awesome if you wanted to share an episode of the podcast on your socials, your Twitter, your, your, your Facebook, your whatever, uh, maybe some other stuff I don't even know exists. Uh, another really important step you can take is subscribe to the podcast. Um, I don't totally understand how the internet works, but I think that's a good one you can do. Lastly, share your love for the fear of God by buying some merch, uh, designed specifically and uniquely commissioned by us from, uh, artist extraordinaire, Jacob Hunt, um, whose links and whatnot you can find in various places if, uh, you can't find it. Ask us. There's plenty of merch opportunities for you over at tpublic.com. Search the fear of God podcast. You can get pillows. You can get bone covers. You can get, uh, magnets. Now you can get a magnet or three. Uh, you can get a sticker. You can get a t-shirt. You can get a read. Hey buddy, you're <laughs> back. You're, <laughs> you like that one? I do. I do. You're enjoying that new little bit, aren't you? 
I do. I, I, I love being available on tpublic.com. It's like I never I never knew that it could be uh, that it could be so important to me to be for sale. Uh, yeah, you know, you know so. as Ted DiBiase once said, "Every man's got a price." My man busting out. <laughs> my man's all right. We're not. We're not <laughs> minutes into the episode, yeah, my man busting out. Million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Oh man, that's so awesome. <laughs> oh. I have this. Uh, it's like I want to invite you to do your Macho Man from a few. From a month ago. That I know. Great. I know. Oh, I do love it. I do love it. Um, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna forego. Maybe Macho Man will show up later in the episode. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But uh but no, I do I, I'm 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 doing okay. I'm doing okay. How are how are you doing? <laughs> so I've been watching uh with the kids in prep for Rise of Skywalker some of the Star Wars films. And you just made me think. This is you're just. Get, this is a really good accolade I'm giving you right now. Oh, you just, you just reminded me of Harrison Ford in A New Hope when he's like, "Everything's fine here. Everything's fine." Uh, how are you? Right, <laughs> when they're in the detention block. Um, so yeah, yeah. Look at you. You're for sale on our site. You reminded me of old Harrison Ford himself. He's man. It's a he's a good man. So <laughs> it blew my son's mind when so we were at Disneyland uh-huh. and. My son finally, my son has gone on the Indiana Jones ride like four times and he has never seen a moment of it because the last four times he rode on it. Oh, of the ride itself. Of the ride. The last four times he rode it, he had his face tucked like down the whole entire time, like refused to open his eyes. He was too scared. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm about to see. I'm too scared. Like wouldn't even give it a chance. Like whatever. Well, this most recent trip to our surprise he said he felt like, he's like, maybe maybe I'll open my eyes. Maybe I'll open my eyes. I actually pivoted some of our Universal Monster conversation and be like, hey, you've watched you've watched like nine horror movies now at this point. So like, you're, you're in. And so he was like, maybe I'll open my eyes. He left his eyes open and he thought it was one of the coolest things he had ever seen in his whole life. But what really blew his mind is when my wife told him, honey, did you know that Indiana Jones is Han Solo? And he was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> it's like you know, we're like the same actor plays Han Solo that plays Indiana Jones. He's like, oh my gosh! And so that yeah, he's uh, so he's desperately wanting to be like Indiana Jones, and even told us, hey, my name's not uh, you know what my name is. It's actually Indiana Jones, and That's I was shrunken, hilarious. shrunken by a potion, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, it yeah he so he loved it. He really loved it. That's pretty amazing. So yeah, so um. But man, uh, we have got a lot to to talk about here. We are in December. Can you believe that December of 2019 is already here? It's already upon us. I can't. No. I can't quite fathom that. Um, don't know quite how I feel about it. But um, happy holidays to everybody. Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy Christmas. All of the all of the seasons of joy and delight and everything to you. Uh, we wish you all of it. And um, tis the season, uh, I'm going to use the word season quite a lot here, because we are in, as we love uh, series here on this show, we are in a new series, our final series of 2019, and it is fitting that we should return to the uh, recurring 2019 series of Stephen King material. Nathan, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this because you know what we're covering this time around? It's, it's unique for the show. It's a bold new world. It's something that we've never really it's like, entertained. It's like Multiverse Martha showing up. Oh, man, Martha with the new hair. So basically what's, <laughs> what's going to happen is um, 
we determined Stephen King had written a book, um, a collection, and he's written a few of these, uh, a collection of shorter novels, novellas, he calls them. And or it's, it's what they are called. And he, his first collection of novellas um, or short novels was called Different Seasons. So we are introducing now here on The Fear of God, hashtag Different Seasons. We are going to be covering for the month of December some non-horror. We're a show about faith and horror, but we're going to be covering some non-horror Stephen King material. And I am terribly excited about this opportunity because it's like, hey, we're in the year of King. King wrote this book called Different Seasons, and uh, we're not going to be covering you know, specifically everything from that book, although today's uh, film comes from there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this. It's just an opportunity for us to visit uh, the, the King's material that is not quite of the frightful variety, um, but still fits into our wheelhouse, if you will. Uh, there's a story that Stephen King loves to tell, and he's told it so many times, I don't know, but in different versions, I don't know exactly the particular details, but that he was presumably walking around in his grocery store in Maine, and a kindly old lady walks up to him, and she says, um, you know, you, you should write different things. I don't like horror. I don't, I, I, don't li- I don't like what you write. And he says back to her, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't just write horror, you know, I, I wrote, uh, you might have heard of a film called The Shawshank Redemption, and, and I wrote that, and as the story goes, she looked back at him and said, no, you didn't write that, I like that, you, di- you didn't write that, uh. and then just like turns around and walks away, <laughs> and he's, wow. he's, he's told that story in so many different versions, but yeah, so he is, uh, while primarily a horror writer, he is not uh, exclusively a horror writer, so we are going to be covering some non-horror Stephen King material for hashtag Different Seasons, and I am really, really excited for this series. Nathan, are you excited? I am. I am. I do think it's um, it'll be an interesting new angle, not just into the holiday season, but into um, into our typical coverage you know so certainly certainly now what we are going to try to do uh over the course of these few films and at, the, at this point by the time this episode airs um nathan will have uh, probably put out onto our social media feeds what the entire month of coverage is going to be i'm going to lay this all out for you right now so just you can get your your uh, excitement gears turning so we're going to be covering today we're going to be covering rob reiner's film stand by me Next week, we're going to be going to the Arnold Schwarzenegger action classic, The Running Man. It's going to be the return of Arnold. I'm so excited. (laughs) After that, we're going to be pivoting back to uh, one of King's uh, more sentimental period pieces for Hearts in Atlantis. And then we are going to be heading to the bowels of Shawshank Prison for the one, the only Shawshank Redemption, uh, and ending it off with a, a kind of a familiar season, if you will, uh, by going back to Derry for to conclude the year uh, with a conversation about the not too long ago released It Chapter Two. So there's some exciting things on the horizon, some exciting conversations to happen. But along the way, uh, I'll say this, and then I'll I'll shut up, and we can sort of dive into things. Along the way, we are also going to, maybe not every episode, but at least for a couple of episodes, we're also going to be highlighting some shorter work by Stephen King that is also non-horror material. And, okay, so can I just confess to you, Nathan, and and by extension, uh, listeners, that uh, I'm not entirely certain how to enter into this conversation? Can I just say that? (laughs) Is that like because um, because uh, we wanted to cover you know a shorter 
piece uh, for this one. So we are going to forego, uh, we'll pour a cold one out. We're probably not going to forego it every single episode, uh, but we're going to forego watching, reading, listening to this uh, time around. And we're going to address a shorter work by Stephen King that, uh, as of some recent news, holds uh, some uh, interesting added uh, significance for me, which uh, makes entering into the conversation a little complicated for me. Well, um, let me let me let me do. You, well, I don't want to take away your thunder here. No, 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 say, no. If you're no. struggling to figure out an inroad here, um, yeah, yeah, by all means. Um, you know, Reed will probably prop up a little bit more of this, but, uh, lives directly, almost, almost directly adjacent to, um, uh, the location geographically where the Saugus high school shootings occurred at, as of this recording about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And we knew we were covering different seasons, um, and we knew we wanted to do some shorts and just, I don't have these that often, I don't think, but in a stroke of just kind of like. Yeah, that has to be the case. I was like, uh, why not cover guns? And texted that to you, and, and you affirmed it heartily. And and if you're unfamiliar, guns, um, I don't have the release date in front of 2012. Me. 2012, so actually mm-hmm. not too long ago. Um, yeah. Guns is just, uh, and you, you may know the origin of it more than I do, but um, is just might be our first documentary we're covering. Um, <laughs> um, is kind of just a little treatise King wrote specifically. I don't know if it was directly in response to this, but he had an occasion that's divulged in the text of, you know, guns, which again is just the name of this short piece about his book rage, uh, being connected to multiple school shootings, uh, over the last 30 years. Um, and wrote from that standpoint, um, you know, about kind of, sort of what he sees or doesn't see is the artist's responsibility here and sort of what that means. And just sort of speaking specifically as a culture creator, a very noteworthy culture creator over the last 40 years in America, the country, specifically a culture creator noteworthy for, as Reed, you just described someone's perception, uh, more macabre, you know, Gothic and or horrific content speaking from that vantage point. And it's a really, yeah. Yeah. You know, if 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 you're a pro to a person, um, which, you know, you probably hate me by now, but um, this probably will not be your cup of tea. But, you know, it, it some of the content in it won't come as a total surprise. It's just an interesting. It's just interesting as a King fan to read this piece and sort of recognize we discussed aspects of this in our quarterly King with on writing, um, yeah. you know, just the nature of of the artist's responsibility or not when it comes to the real world and how their work does or doesn't impact that. And so anyway, so it felt appropriate. Um, and as just, uh, just, uh, there's what's weird is there's no metaphor I'm looking for here that doesn't involve some sort of, um, incendiary device, like an opening shot, a shot across the bow opening with a bang. Like it felt Mm, appropriate mm. to say, you know what, here we are. Let's just talk about this piece which is actually not the primary content we're going to get to, but um, right, felt, right. you know, why not start the Christmas season off right? <laughs> <laughs> Christmas season. Merry, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, so, yeah, I, I, so I kind of got a little bit of my bearings um, now. I'll say a few more things. So uh, th- the, the essay uh, that Nathan was referencing is, is simply called Guns, um, and it was published, uh, well, it was written, 
in the wake of Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. And it was published, uh, I, I said 2012 very quickly, but it was actually January of 2013. The, the other novel that we referenced, it's actually the first novel that Stephen King wrote. Um, it's uh, At the time that he wrote it, it was a novel called uh, Getting It On, which is a very awkward title. And then after he had published maybe you know five or six uh, popular bestsellers, um, he repurposed um, the the novel Getting It On uh, with, uh, he just kind of rewrote it and then repurposed it and then resubmitted it to his publisher under the title Rage. And the premise, as Nathan, uh, I think, alluded to a second ago, um, but the premise of Rage is entirely... Uh, about a young high school student who uh, is psychologically disturbed, comes from a an abusive and uh, traumatizing home, and brings a gun to school and uh, and kills uh, one of his teachers and holds his class hostage. and And this was written and 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 King even calls this out in the essay. He said, "If I had written this today, uh, then there would be tremendous uproar and upheaval and everything." But it was written in 1965 when these things were not prominent national news and these things were not happening uh with the degree of frequency and and um with the level of coverage that they are now and so he wrote it but there were then in the in the subsequent years that followed after its publication um and he had written it under his his pseudonym i can't remember if i said this or not he had written it under his pseudonym richard bachman and in the years that followed there were a few people who uh, young people who had perpetrated uh, certain shootings. Not all of them ended in casualties, but each of them had connections some some way, either directly or tangentially, to the novel Rage. So King basically says that in late 1997, after the second of these such instances became known to him, he went to his publisher and was like, pull it out of print, like take it out of print. I want the book out of print, and I want... It was also part of a collection called the Bachman books. He was like, I want the Bachman books out of print and I want rage out of print, like pull it. Uh, they later republished the Bachman books with just um, the other three novels that were in it. But um, he asks for it to be pulled. And what's fascinating to me is this essay basically goes through, it's very brief. I mean, you'll, you, you can read it beginning to end in maybe 20 to 30 minutes. I mean, it is super, super brief. But he basically lays out the the situation of publishing the novel, the current situation of, you know, guns in America. And he then uh, sort of unpacks one thing that I think he makes really clear. And I kind of I kind of love that he does this is he says, I won't apologize for writing the book because I feel like that book is, uh, you know, has got a, a strong grain of truth in it. And if you don't feel at least a little bad about shoving a blanket over a grain of truth, then you have no real moral conscience. And I just, I loved that, uh, that sentiment. But well, and, he, and to, if I can inter, inter, interject sure, there, sure. Uh, specifically, he references another book called The Copycat Effect, uh, written mm. by this author, who said in her book, that King apologized for writing rage. And I love the way he delivers is the only reason I interrupted you. And he yeah. just says, no, sir, no, ma'am. I never did. And never would. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. You know. It's great. It's great. But he, so he basically is saying, you know, that, that, that 
the reason he pulled it from print is not because he regrets writing it or because he he wishes it wasn't out there or whatever, but clearly it was not helping and it was making things worse. And so at that point, the responsible thing to do is to pull the thing from print. And I just, I love the way that he puts that. He, you know, he also kind of calls out in the essay that if you are left-leaning, then you're already, as he puts it, kind of uh, striking up the choir. <laughs> you're kind of tuning up the choir. And if you're right-leaning, then you're are, then you're either completely skipping out on what he's trying to say from the get-go, or you are approaching it with a very clenched fist and just, like, ready to attack any of his sort of speculations. He goes into some brief uh, suggestions on what to do about gun violence and uh, and what to do about specifically the propitiation of guns in America. And what I love, if you if if you are curious to read this this essay, whether you're on the right or on the left, what I love about it is he actually um, hits pretty hard against some stereotypical left leaning talking points um, and kind of debunks them a little bit, like to the degree that you know. Uh, buybacks and and all of that is really going to work. Um, it, it, anyway, I won't unpack the entire essay for you, but I feel like it's pretty balanced. I feel like it at least tries to be balanced as much as his admittedly left current left leaning sensibilities will allow him to be. But what I loved so much about the essay was this this conversation of responsibility, and uh, I want to. So Nathan, if 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 you'll if you'll permit me. What I'd like to do on this conversation is I want to, to give you a moment to make any sort of comment that you'd like to make about the essay, and then I just kind of want to end with a, a, a brief uh, story about the, the, my own recent personal occurrence, if that, if, if that would be okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm down for whatever. I mean, you know, to be frank, it, it would just, my commentary on the text would just be more kind of like identifying specific elements that were appealing but via quotes i do love he's referencing the book rage and he says the book told unpleasant truths and anyone who doesn't feel a qualm of regret at throwing a blanket over the truth is an a-hole with no conscience yeah yeah yeah, now something something that he did say that actually gave me some uh, that i really appreciated he 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 addresses this notion of america being a culture of violence and He says, let me be frank, the idea that America exists in a culture of violence is BS. What America exists in is a culture of Kardashian. And Mm -hmm. then he makes an interesting pivot. He says, superhero movies and comic books teach a lesson that runs directly counter to the culture of violence idea. Guns are for bad guys too cowardly to fight like men. And Mm -hmm. the last the last note here, and we can unpack some of this if we if you want. The assertion that Americans love violence and bathe in it daily is a self-serving lie promulgated by fundamentalist religious types in America's propaganda savvy gun pimps. Um, it's be- I love yeah. this. It's believed by people who don't read novels, play video games, or go to many movies. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I want you to get as personal as you want in, in your dialogue here, but uh, you know, when, when you get there, but I just love this framing device because it is easy. You know all too well based on recent history um, here in Charlotte at the, the university, uh, which is a pretty big campus, um, there is a, a small school shooting, or I mean, there were fatalities involved about a year and a half ago. Uh, like mm-hmm. it, it, it is everywhere, it is constant. But I also really appreciated someone of his age and stature sort of attacking this defeatist, fatalistic notion of 
America perpetually this culture of violence. And it's really interesting because unrelated to gun stuff, like at all, I've been thinking about, you know, cause, cause I'm no you, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I watch a lot of horror movies now, you know, it's just, it's kind of, right, it's right, kind of part right. of the fabric of my consumption. And, you know, every now and then it's like, Oh, not sure about that one. You know, oh, <laughs> right, right, first, ten, right. first 10 minutes of high tension. Don't know about that. Sorry, Mira. <laughs> right, you know, right, like, right, right, right. You know, those sorts of experiences. But by and large, I, again, this is utterly unrelated to having red guns. This is before I read guns. This is before shooting. It was not related to shootings whatsoever. Just personal kind of introspection. And how by and large, I don't think I've developed a more caustic attitude or a more mean or, or cruel disposition because of that type of consumption. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Oh, um, oh absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, I think a diversity of input is good and that's appropriate and healthy, but there's so many, and, and you know, this haven't been in the mix of this type of content longer than me, but I just have so little room for that kind of accusation these days, like, yeah. Oh God, how can you watch that? Or what, what is that? Do? Oh, it's, it's the movies. It's the video games. Like I, I can't stand it. I think it's an utter and total fallacy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so I just really kind of appreciated that f- the way he framed this as it's not that we're a culture of violence. It's that we're a culture of shallowness and, and apocalyptic, you know, denigration. It's like, I, I, right. don't, know. I don't know. I just, I just really appreciated the, the way he framed that. I I did too. And I, uh, not because of that essay, but I've, I've commented a lot recently about how the, the notion of, and I've said it on the show before. I've said it on this show before that I I have watched violent films, uh, horror movie violence since, since I was very young and, uh, nothing has, uh, numbed me or, shaken me uh more than actual violence happening in the world around us you know like it's it's not i i join you in your wholehearted disagreement about this uh this idea of of just sort of bloodthirsty people consuming you know violent media um it's just it simply doesn't and he unpacks it pretty deftly in the essay but it simply does not bear weight um when you look at the statistics of what things are popular and how they're popular. Um, it just simply does not, it doesn't hold any water that, uh, we are far more violent as a society or as a culture. That's just, that's, that's a talking point. Was that, did did you have anything else to say about it before I sort of wind this portion of things down? Uh, No, I mean, I I don't know exactly what you're prepping me for here, but I mean, uh, you know, I think there's more in there, but I think that general sort of backdrop was, my primary kind of takeaway that I appreciated the most. Sure. Sure. And the, and you know, we've said it a couple of times now, the, the essay is, is very, very brief. Part of what I'm resisting sort of sharing all of the talking points is I don't want to summarize an essay that then makes people feel like they don't want to go read it. Cause I think it deserves to be read. And, uh, I, I think regardless of where you're, where you lean politically, um, I think you will gleam some value from reading it because, you know, He's he's old Uncle Stevie. He uh, 
he has a great way of putting things and he's got a very natural and down to earth way of putting things. And, um, and I love him for that. So, um, but I, I wanted to, uh, share a little bit about, uh, just on that notion of some of what he talks about, about just, uh, responsibility. So uh, another reason we've mentioned it already, but another reason why that brief essay was on our minds to discuss in relationship to this episode is not because it has anything to do with Stand By Me, but um, because recently, as uh, I'm sure listeners of the show probably saw on the news, that uh, there was actually uh, another, uh, I don't know what adjectives to use here, but there was a smaller uh, school shooting, and it was directly next to where I live. And um, it was very strange to me, I'm not going to take a ton of time here, but it was very, very strange to me to hear about these things happening and see these things happening in the town where I specifically live versus, you know, just happening even in the broader Los Angeles area or in uh, sort of the general county or something. But like, but literally I was without going through the entire story of my day, uh, we were running a little bit late that morning and I was taking my son to school and from our parking lot, we live in uh, an apartment complex, and from the uh, parking lot of our apartment complex, you can look over the, you can look off in the distance and you can see the hill where the high school was. And so I got a phone call with my son in the car and uh, get a phone call from my wife, and there's, uh, and she tells me that there's an active shooter at the high school. And as she tells me this, I'm, I'm looking at that hill uh, and I'm seeing it. And uh, that just made everything much more tangible and uh, much more frightening and much more real. Uh, I feel a bit slimy using that word in relation to these things as if the others that happened were not real, but hopefully listeners understand where I'm coming from with that. Um, It just becomes a lot more affecting when it is in that sort of arena. So uh, we came home and obviously did not go anywhere uh, the remainder of the day. I eventually, after everything had calmed down, went on to work. But um, what was interesting to me in the wake of that, and I, uh, I mean, if you know what shooting we're referring to, I live in uh, Santa Clarita, and uh, there was a an article published in the Los Angeles Times that uh, w- I found very, very moving um, because we saw it happening in our friends around us and we saw it happening in some of our neighbors and heard about it happening. Uh, there was a vigil after the event. Uh, there was a vigil for the two students that had lost their lives. And following that vigil, there was an article published in the Los Angeles times and the headline said, grace, not anger fuels the healing process for the Santa Clarita community. And I really was very touched and uh, humbled, and I was very, I felt very proud to be a part of a community that did for these days following this traumatic event. We saw GoFundMe campaigns not only for the families of the victims who survived and, and for the two who did not, but also for the remaining surviving family of the shooter himself and the way in which. Everyone seemed very united behind we will heal past this and sort of the the weight of spiritual significance with it. I found it tremendously inspiring and I found it tremendously hopeful uh, in ways that I did not 
expect to feel on that Thursday when it happened. That Thursday when it happened, I fully expected, well, this this is going to be devastating now for indefinitely. And I don't want to diminish the impact of the, that specific event, but I was tremendously encouraged just looking at the local scenario. I was just I was just incredibly inspired and encouraged that like, oh, it it is possible. It is possible for something other than rage to cite specifically King's right. book. It is possible for something other than rage to fuel the healing process. And it is possible that we do not have to succumb to the patterns and habits that we have seen so frequently take place in the wake of violent tragedies in this country. And so any more, like, I, what I didn't want this conversation to be was I didn't want to browbeat on one side of the argument, even though you and I, Nathan, have very strong individual feelings and opinions about this, and, and we are not uh, really in... In, in any disagreement about any of the, uh, like our, our personally held opinions, I think would align almost lockstep. Um, but I didn't want to do that in this conversation. What I wanted to do instead was uh, to say, uh, while pointing to this, I think, very heartfelt and sensible essay that King had written about the problem and about the ways in which we must give up our entitlements and we must give up our our sense of ownership to certain crucial aspects that we have no, you know, nobody's making any demands on us to give these things up, but he had to pull or, well, he felt it was the right moral choice, responsible choice to pull his novel that he worked hard on that he spent time with. And he wanted to pull it out of print because he felt that was the responsible thing to do. And what is grace, if not an emptying of yourself to again in combination with that article to fuel the healing process and uh it, it just all be kind of kind of came together as a piece for me to say that like when these things happen there are better choices we can make there are stronger choices more wholesome more healing choices that we could make should we choose to do so and so yeah i i i wanted uh in this clumsy flimsy way to uh to express that and to affirm that side of things so thank you for allowing me to in my own clumsy <laughs> stumbling way to do that so what you're saying is it's the video games basically yeah right. basically that's stop the, stop stop the violent that's what video i'm hearing games. that's a yeah stop the violent video games that's the uh andy that's andy hillabophus put, <laughs> put down luigi's mansion I know. But uh, Luigi's bad. <laughs> it's provoking something. <laughs> <laughs> I do, uh, right. in, on a serious note, I do thank you for sharing that, Reed. I think it's very valuable for not just uh, me, but for anyone who might hear it. But I did appreciate, too, in the text. And, and he absolutely is not stating in this action dark novels or fiction or horror cause this incident. But he has right, this right, note, right. and he says, I did see Rage, the book, as a possible accelerant, which is why I pulled mm -hmm. it from sale. You don't leave a can of gasoline where a boy with firebug tendencies can lay hands on it. And, right. and, and I think, you know, the broader point, too, is just one of responsibility. And he, he was in a position, and interestingly so, not without pushback, because Rage had been collected. And it was like 
to remove yeah. it from circulation also meant removing this collection from circulation. And right. he, he right. enforced that into being. And so, no, it's a, it's a valuable conversation and one that needs to be ongoing and present and hopefully with some action behind it at a certain point. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so listeners, I, I, I just want to, um, say a thank you if you've listened to uh this portion of the conversation just thank you for bearing with us uh through that uh my my community uh the the high school specifically is saugus and we have a a saying that has been hashtagged to to pieces recently um and i'm very very thankful for it and that's just saugus strong uh saugus strong or uh, centurion which is their mascot centurion strong and uh, my community is uh is is really feeling the the weight and the burden but they're also feeling the strength from each other from their faith from their um you know their bonding together and uh and it is uh it is an inspiring thing to see and it has given me a tremendous amount more hope than i expected to have um so that's awesome so yeah yeah that's great and this uh, the 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 subject will probably come up again as we pivot into um our material today, uh, the core material that maybe some of the listeners signed up exclusively for, but that is the uh, the the film is Stand by Me, directed by Rob Reiner, and it is from 1986, and it was, I believe, the very first film adaptation of Stephen King's material that was not horror. I'm pretty certain that that this was the first adaptation of a Stephen King uh, piece that was not specifically horror themed, and uh, it I think I mentioned it was directed by Rob Reiner. It's based on a novella called The Body from different seasons. Now, Nathan, have you have you ever read The Body? Have you ever read it? I have never read The Body. All right, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's very good. Um, yeah. Uh, well, the, then speak to, did you read it recently? Did you read it in prep for this at all? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reread it in prep for this. Now, interesting side note, and maybe you were going to get to this. I apologize if I'm stealing your thunder here. But the uh, Stranger Things season one episode, The Body, is, of course, actually a direct um, yep. inspiration from that. Um, how, I wasn't going to get to that. Good good call out. Well, you're welcome. I do love Stranger <laughs> Things. <laughs> um, <laughs> um can you speak a little bit to are there any real deliberate or noteworthy changes? There are. Uh, I, I feel remiss to I did not write them down. Most of the changes are asides in the in the actual written text that were removed or not adapted um, because the the novella is written in first person. So it's uh, the character of Gordy, uh, as in the film, the character of Gordy is recounting this right. summer when he and his friends heard about a body uh, several miles away, and they wanted to go exploring and discover this body and uh, therefore become famous. So the, the novella is written in first person, and there are constant interjections of things that happened like in different phases of Gordy's life beyond that summer. Interesting. So so lots of those little interjections do not make it to the film. They uh there are also uh a co- more than one uh you know the story of the pie eating contest is just one uh there are more than one in the novella uh, of those kinds of little stories that Gordy tells. That's um, interesting because well 
I don't know if you want to just jump into the text or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like sure, yeah, go ahead. The the Biden con it's so random. It's so Isn't random. It? Yeah. I yeah, mean it's it's, it's it's very random. It's great how, you know, kind of much a part it plays, but it's just it's just like what? What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, you didn't ask me this and that's totally fine, but I ha it's funny because I've seen the film before, but it's been forever. Ah. Um and so, you know, like you can't have seen this film and forget the story of Lardass. So like it's just Yes. It's just yes. part it's just part of the experience of this film, but but it is but watching it in my forty year old two thousand nineteen self, I'm like, huh, is this is this okay? <laughs> you know, this, like, I don't know. What what do we think about this? It's <laughs> funny. But anyway. It's 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 an intentionally sort of cartoonish like sure. comical yeah, yeah, moment yeah. uh in the film and uh is is intentionally over the top like Rob Reiner had said like he he sort of went into full-blown absurdity when he was depicting that particular story because he wanted it to have the, the everything in, else in the film has such a real and naturalistic feel to everything That's he true. wanted that to be very very heightened intentionally um and his uh, comic sensibilities aided him in that now in when that Gor when gordy tells mm -hmm. other stories in the text are they is it is it like this in other words is it him telling stories to the boys uh yes yeah it's basically just uh, stories that he's made up and uh stories that he's working on sometimes not stories that he's told the boys but just uh other stories that he has written because he does grow up to become uh a best-selling writer and um and that's his that's his primary profession he's very sure. it, like so many of king's works like he's a he's a kind of a stephen king surrogate in the in the thing um so yeah that that's uh, there are lots of other smaller, subtle changes. Um, like, for instance, uh, this is skipping a bit to the end. The impetus for the film uh, that we see is what the the film centers around four boys, and we meet the first character that we meet is actually the adult version of one of those boys, and he is reading in the newspaper about the death of one of the other of the boys. So what is uh, a bit darker uh, and a bit more haunting is that in the novella, Gordy is the only surviving, like at the point of the story, he's the only one of those four boys that is still alive. Oh, Whereas wow. in the film, um, it is only the character of Chris, who uh, is played by River Phoenix. It's only the character of Chris who um, had been killed uh, but in the novella, the other two boys did die as well and died very young. That's um, a, that's interesting yeah. because, you know, adaptations can. What did we? It was the vanishing. Our conversation about the vanishing, and I, mm, I had mm. a little, I had a little digression about adaptation, and I think yeah. that's a really interesting point you just made because, again, so often there's this effort to just kind of copy and paste story beats into a film right. version. And I think what you just described is such a perfect and why, you know, scooching ahead to recommends here, why I think this movie is so strong. Is it like it, it yeah. just distills, you know, it, 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 it kind of jettisons some of what is unnecessary because you just don't have that kind of real estate in a film that you do in the prose work. 
Right. And, and, right. and so it's like, okay, well, what is this primarily about? It's about our march towards mortality and what we do and who we are and what we, how we engage along the way. Okay. Well, right. Do I need, do I need the deaths of four other kids? No. Or whatever, however many, you know what I mean? It's like, right. no, you just right. need right. one that is significant and important and the others doesn't matter. And so that's, that's an interesting point that you made and, and just sort of reinforces. Um, did you do any deep dive on, on trivial bits or anything? I do, I do have a handful. Uh, I can, I can rattle them off rather quickly. Do you have any? Um, I I, I've got I've got a few, but there's a real specific one. Even if it's my only one, I want to throw out real quick before you possibly. Yeah, start. go ahead and yeah, go ahead and do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it says Kiefer Sutherland claimed in an interview that in one of the locations of the film, a Renaissance fair was being held. Do you know where this is going? Uh, I do, I do, but I and, didn't have it written in mind, so you're and good. And the cast and crew attended the Ren Fair and bought some cookies. Unfortunately. The cookies turned out to be pot cookies, and yep. two hours later, the crew found Jerry O'Connell crying and high on the cookies somewhere in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so oh, hilariously hysterical. like his character, right? Like, that is... That, that is that, Vern. That oh, feels it like so it got taken from the text. Yes, yes. It's really, really funny. Uh, yeah, I did not make note of that, but I did read that and, and thought it was delightful. I, yeah. I just wanted to share the one about irresponsible, you know, stuff. So, so you can tell the rest. <laughs> irresponsible stuff pot cookies. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll rattle these off as quickly as I can. But um, Rob Reiner has uh, gone on record saying that he thinks this is the best film he ever made. Um, Stephen King himself was so deeply affected by the film that in the in the private screening where he first saw it, when the film was over, he walked out of the room. And and didn't talk to anybody, and so for a moment everybody was like, "What? Like, what in the world? Like, does he not like it? Is he mad? Like, what's going on?" When he had, he was trying to compose himself, and when he came back, he told uh, Rob Reiner, he said that this was the best adaptation of one of his works that he'd ever seen. That's awesome. And um, yeah, so so very very moved by it. The film's title, so the novella. If you were to pick up a copy of Different Seasons, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you were to pick up a copy of Different Seasons, the film's title was changed from The Body to Stand By Me because uh, a, a savvy marketing executive was concerned that The Body would either sound like just another horror film or like a porno. That's <laughs> so hilarious. Like, so, so we're not going to do this. That's an interesting uh, note. Does does the song play into the text at all? Is that a completely no. random fabrication? It is a, com- is a complete, uh, it belongs to the film only. Yeah, it's just it's something that, that is kind of weird. Yeah, and and it it just came up because they were trying to come up with different titles for the film. So like, what we're we gonna do? And it's actually it was actually Rob Reiner. I don't remember the the all of the details of this story, but it was actually Rob Reiner who threw out like we could just call it "Stand by Me," like that old song. And it was like nobody really like cheered for that. Uh-huh. But after all, like when they looked at all the other options on the table, they're like, "Stand by Me" works. Let's do "Stand by Me." <laughs> So wow. that was yeah. Well, because and the so, use yeah. of the song as an overlay track soundtrack is just odd. It's like this is mm, mm-hmm. kind of. I mean, it's fine. And I don't like dislike. Well, it's like the music. It's. I mean, it's lovely, but it's kind of like the Muzak version of Stand. Yeah, like, oh, totally. Like, it's like the elevator music, and so it's. Uh, it is. It, it is somewhat odd, um, but then <laughs> strangely, it kind of all works. <laughs> I sure. don't know. Um, 
I don't know if you had heard this in your travels, but Richard Dreyfus, who wound up being the who looks nothing like Will Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they're so dramatically different, but uh, like Will Wheaton's rather tall, and Richard Dreyfus is not, and so it, it, the the similarities Will, don't. Will Wheaton is not tall. We met. Well, Will he's he's not tall. Of course, we met Will Wheaton, but he's tall among the boys. Like he's taller than Corey Feldman and uh, Jerry O'Connell, who would grow up to well, be much taller. Yeah, but, but in the I context just... of the movie, you don't see the rest of them. At the well, Alder that's a good State, point. So thus, Dreyfus relative to them doesn't matter. Reed. I just, you know, I just want to appreciate <laughs> you taking this throwaway comment, and <laughs> I just, I just want if to congratulate anyone, you. If anyone is ever like, I wonder what Reed Nathan's friendship is like. <laughs> that you just saw it. You just That's saw it, it in That's real time. That's what happens. That's what happens. So, so because you brought that up, yes, we did. We we did meet Will Wheaton. Um, you and I met him in passing at Halloween Horror Nights that uh, that evening, which was great. We saw from a distance Seth Green as well, but did not actually interact with him. We actually spoke with Will Wheaton, which was great. It was actually my second time meeting him. Oh my gosh! And yeah, I didn't write this down, but you brought it up, so this is your I, fault. Yeah. So yeah. So I, <laughs> so I spun the dreidel, and here we are. You did. You going. <laughs> There we are. It was actually my say. You alluded last week to all of my celebrity sightings because you got to meet um, Charlie Cox and Tom Hiddleston. And so, uh, yeah, that was was pretty awesome. Yeah, you did. And you had alluded in there. You're like, hey, celebrities ask Reed for his autograph. And I said, well, one did. That one was actually Will Wheaton. And it was uh, and and it was all because of the Batman. It's it's all because of Batman. Time is a flat circle. It's like dark. It's just the beginning is the end is the beginning. (laughs) And but the the story behind it was I had written a comic book. And coincidentally, on free comic book day, uh, the publisher of my comic book, which was about uh, Adam West, the actor who had played Batman. um, And uh, my comic book had been paired up with the comic book written by Walter Koenig, who played uh, Pavel Chekhov in the Star Trek series, the original Star Trek series. So what that meant for publication and promotion was that I, that day, got to spend the day with Walter Koenig signing our comic book because it was two sides of the same thing. Well, then, at one point, it transitioned from the Hollywood comic shop where we were down to a Burbank comic shop. And when that transitioned, Will Wheaton completely coincidentally was shopping at that comic shop. And so I was chatting with him, telling him what a fan I was, just being a total fanboy or whatever. But he noticed that I was sitting next to Walter Koenig. And he was like, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? And I said, oh, I, I wrote The Misadventures of Adam West. And Will Wheaton, being completely sweet and a dear man, just like over dramatically was like, you wrote The Misadventures of Adam West? And then I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then he hands out his copy. And he's like, will you sign mine? <laughs> I was like, wow, this is uh, this is quite and surreal. So, now, yes. Now, to your point five minutes ago, was he tall? He's taller than me, but, I mean, who isn't, you know? So You know, so in, an in, in another interesting little aside, and we're going to get back to the body at some point. Uh, speaking of Batman, the misadventures of Adam West, I got, you know, I, I'll, I'll – give you you know ribbing for how many <laughs> names you like to drop but I, i'm gonna pat you on the back it's a good 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 book and you know well, thank the, you the, i appreciate the, the, that other places we could have gone but uh <laughs> about five years after the misadventure of adam west i'm reading 
So I'm reading this Thor book five years later after The Misadventures of Adam West by Jason Aaron, which is a really great run, by the way. We referenced that a long time ago when I spoiled who uh, Lady Thor was um, for <laughs> Reed, uh, written by Jason Aaron and illustrated by Russell Dowderman. And I was like, man, I really recognize this art. It was the artist on The Misadventures of Adam West. Oh, it was. it's all it was. dark. It's all it's dark. All, oh, my God. Hannah's in 53 with it's the so time crazy. machine. Ulrich's <laughs> in the future or not. Or is he? Elizabeth is her mom, is her daughter, is her grandma. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so yeah. all, all of that, I want to say, Will Wheaton <laughs> is a delightful human being. <laughs> he is a, a tremendously kind uh, individual. Damn both. it, Wesley. <laughs> both to his fans who uh you know randomly show up and and uh, approach him uh, on the street uh and I'm sure to all the people that he works with as well he's just he's a fine human being um so uh but all of that started by me commenting on how Richard Dreyfus looks nothing like him and uh the reason he got the part is because he's the high school friend of Rob Reiner that's all I wanted to say like this is 10 minutes ago uh but Will I'm so Wheaton glad that is we... the high school friend of Rob Reiner no, Richard Dreyfus is the only reason oh. that Richard Dreyfus <laughs> got the role where he turns up and grown. <laughs> I know, I'm like good lord. So no, Richard Dreyfus well, is the high school were, friend of Rob Ryan. Right, right, right. No, it makes sense. But you were just following the Will Wheaton train, and then you were like, he only got the part because he was a friend of Rob Ryan. I was like, what? Right, right. You know what? The lesson to be taken here is. <laughs> Don't have a conversation <laughs> with Nathan. <laughs> you should interrupt me far less than you do because rabbit trails abound when you just you're like you just throw it in there. You just like charge in. You're just yeah. like I don't want to say this. I don't want to say this. So this is my last trivial bit. I just found yeah, it interesting right. that no, it is. I just found it interesting that Sean Astin and Ethan Hawke were both uh, considered for the role of Gordy. So uh, the role that eventually went to our beloved Will Wheaton. Which I should reach out to that guy. He's a good guy. Well, Wheaton, you're a good man. Um, that's all the tri- <laughs> that's all the trivial bits that I had. Um, so uh, yeah, let's get into let's get into some likes dislikes so that we can eventually end the episode. Um, well, let me let me let me just, let me throw out you here. So like, okay, um, throw out. You know, I was watching this the other night, and again, having not read the body, haven't seen this film a long time ago. This is a really good film. Oh, it's amazing! It's a yeah. really good film. Like, it's wonderful. Like, you know, you know how King, especially these days when we're at like peak King, which is not to be confused with Peking, like the duck. Wow. Um, <laughs> this is four hour episode. <laughs> good Lord. Oh, what did you say? Um, I say good Lord. No, before that. Um, it doesn't matter. I'll follow it somewhere. But <laughs> in this era of maximum King output, you know, kind of culturally, you know how like every piece of material he's he's got like has his stamp of approval, like his endorsement, like, oh, this thing's coming yeah, out. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's so good. You should go see it. It's great. Like you have to <laughs> he learn. He gave an endorsement to the Dark Tower. <laughs> like, right. On. You're making my point. But you have to learn to just filter that through like congenial, jovial good-natured Uncle Stevie, right? You got to learn right, to like be right. like, but King said it was amazing. We're like, well, yeah, because he's he's a good man. If we was around, be like, King, you're a good man. And <laughs> But you got to learn to be like, well, have a little bit of discernment because it, it might just be okay. Um, yeah. This is one of those you're like, no, this is actually a really fantastic film. With no, it really is. Fantastic yeah. casting with excellent performances. It's well-written. It's heartfelt. 
Yeah, it's great. I was it's a great movie. I was in in the watching of it. I was just trying. I was kind of trying to assess like why am I responding so positively to this? I mean, certainly it's just a really you know good stew of of elements, but I think there's also this degree to which it skirts right up to saccharin. You know, like mm, oh, yeah, but yeah, but the film the film never feels false. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. I never don't believe the truth of the heart and the story and the relationships they're putting out there. Yeah. And I just, I just I find that such a, it, what that does is lets you just trust your, your story now, like as a consumer, yeah. as a, as a viewer, wow, these, and it's, it starts like the framing device is a little silly in the movie, but it's fine. Whatever. No big deal. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, you never see Dreyfus again, right? Like maybe at the end, does he show you, back no, up in the end? Yeah. Yeah. So you see him at the very beginning and you see him at the very end and that's, um, and that's it. You don't see him through um, the middle. Do you hear how he got the part? I, I heard it was because he was really tall and looked a lot like Will Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good re- response there. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Um, <laughs> um, I love how surprised you are when I'm funny. <laughs> like, uh, just, I mean, yeah, you know, um, well, uh, we can change our character, and you've done a good job. Just, um, <laughs> that's <laughs> where was I going here? Oh, oh, oh the <laughs> the scene uh, post Dreyfus with them all in the treehouse or the clubhouse, like, yeah, that yeah, scene yeah. just just is crackling. And, oh, it's so great. and and it's that scene that really kind of telegraphs to at least me, the, this particular viewer, like, man, there's some really truthful engagement and interaction and storytelling happening between these actors. And it's really lovely. Yeah. And now I just kind of trust wherever you're taking me. Sure. Something else that's really amazing. You talk about how it walks right up to the edge of, of Saccharin. Something that just boggles me. There, uh, there. What I'm trying to say, this script is the kind of thing that I bet I would read it and several of these lines I'd be like, no kid would say that. Like, I don't know that a kid would say that. But I hear it coming out of the mouths of these kids and I believe every word of it. Sure. Like, it's it's amazing to me. Like, So I'm thinking specifically of a scene that I love so much is when Chris, the character played by River Phoenix... He chastises Gordy for trashing his own writing. And Gordy's like, ah, you know, my writing, it's stupid. I don't want to do it, you know? And then I I didn't write down every part of his basic speech to him, but he says, like, hey, man, it's like God gave you something and had said, here's what we got for you, kid. But then here's the line, and coming out of River Phoenix's mouth, I believe every word of it. But if I had read this on paper, I'd be like, kids don't talk like this. Here's what he says. Chris says to Gordy, he says, kids lose everything unless there's somebody looking out for them. Hmm. And... And I'm like, that is some wisdom right there. Like, good lord, that's like, that's amazing. And I and I never would have believed that. Like, again, on paper, I might have really been skeptical of this script, but something in Reiner's direction and these kids' performances really sells it. And the believability that you're talking about just saturates every frame. Like, it's all there, even at the point of things where, kind of intellectually you might say that stretches the boundaries of believability it's it's still very affecting and it's it's really wonderful um i love all four of the performances uh they're great the more the main performances we got uh will wheaton playing gordy uh did do you remember when we met him that was fun um and then we have jerry o'connell he's taller than i expected yeah 
Well, it's because you're standing next to me. Jerry O'Connell um, is uh, playing Vern. Uh, he is uh, was frequently referred to in in uh, by himself in interviews as the fat kid from Stand by Me. Um, and then there is Corey Feldman playing Teddy, um, and then the unfortunately late River Phoenix uh, playing Chris. But they're all four very great performances. What I had completely forgotten before watching it was John Cusack's very small role. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. Gordon's brother, um, yeah, had totally he's forgotten a, that he was in this. He's got a bigger role than Richard Dreyfus does. Yeah, that's a good point. But I remember Richard Dreyfus because he's at the beginning and the end. I did not remember old dinner scene with John Cusack and you know him in the in the bedroom. Um, but yeah, I uh, do. I do also appreciate, and this lends itself to what I was saying a minute ago about the truthfulness of it all. Vern's is a slightly more elusive, but. More or less, they give each boy a very complete arc. Um, yeah, you know, no, they very, do. Very they deliberate do. and clear, uh, kind of emotional arc. Um, I mean, clearly, Gordy and Chris are meant as our centerpieces, but uh, yes, Te- they're the Te- anchors. You know, Teddy has a pretty clarified, you know, sort of path. Um, well, and Vern Vern does though, man. Like because uh, I, I mean, it's undercut a bit by Gordy's emotional freakout that interrupts it but Vern is the kid that Teddy is constantly like two for flinching and like punching him and then when they're sort of having a crisis of whether or not they're going to give up this search for the body and go back uh, Vern finally just like loses it (laughs) and stands up for himself and just starts beating the fool out of Teddy Um, again it's not as you know it's it's not as emotionally arresting as particularly Chris or Gordy's arc but yeah, it's like they they carry all four of the boys through like a very deliberate path from where we meet them at the beginning to where we know them at the end. I love Vern and the comb. <laughs> and oh, so says, great. Why'd you bring it? You don't even have any hair. And he's like, I brought it for you guys. Like just <laughs> just that team player. I think oh. I think I think I like Vern a lot because I, I I was kind of the Vern. Oh, um, were you Vern? I was a little bit of the Vern. Um. Now, it's not to like, you know, Belinda Carlisle, Heaven is a Place on Earth level, but this soundtrack is so good. Oh, it's amazing. Like, All this great 50s music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was awesome. listening to it in my headphones, a new tune would come out. Yeah, that's a good song. That's a good song. I love this soundtrack because, like, the sound the soundtrack album is just like 10 oldies songs. You can listen to it in like 20 minutes and you just feel great. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. Wanna, yeah, it's just so just great. Just want to go find a dead body. <laughs> wow. That's a, that took a turn. Hey, um, you want to know something really funny? Sure. So, utterly and completely unrelated to Stand By Me, one, I didn't know this was even a conversation in the zeitgeist, but, so, <clears throat> my oldest child attends a school that's about, um, with modest traffic, 30 minutes away. And, okay. you know, maybe 25 if you're lucky. But, there's a another child a couple of grades ahead of her uh, across the street. And so we've worked it out where we trade off pickup duty with those parents. And so my kid is uh sixth grade. This kid is a freshman. And so, you know, is in a little more advanced classes naturally academically and whatnot. Well, they sure. both, they go to this theater school. Well, it's not explicitly theater, but it's an art school with a bunch of different disciplines. They each are doing theater. Well, one day we're driving home from school and I'm trying to engage them and, you know, just converse and be silly or whatever. And one of, I think it was the neighbor kid brings up this 
thought experiment question and says, I'm not making this up, says, what is Goofy? Hmm. You know. The, like, is the, he a dog? Is he a, like, a, a cow. The, the character? Did you know what? this is a thing? This is a real conversation in the ether. Like What? Yes, totally. So when Vern brings it up, I think it's him, I was laughing my butt off. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is in here. When right. the, It's the montage around the campfire. Yes. <laughs> he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog, what's Goofy? Because literally <laughs> the entire funny. half hour on our way home from school, we were debating whether Goofy was a dog or a, a cow. My to, wow. to clarify, my impulse and knee jerk was he's absolutely a dog, to which the rebuttal is often Pluto. And I'm like, well, no, Pluto. Yeah, you can you can interrogate all you want. The weird sort of ethics of an anthropomorphic mouse having a dog as a pet, you know, like let's we can do that. <laughs> But Goofy always, to me, presented as a dog. However, you can look this up. Historically, there is contention, partly generated by his romance with Clarabelle, right, who is a cow, um, that in his origin, uh, he was inspired by a dog character, much like there was a progenitor to Steamboat Willie, but it is slightly inconclusive exactly what wow so you know regardless watching this yeah ned would know ned yes to the ned meter we we need we need ned to weigh in on this is goofy a dog now again i'm putting my money on dog but you know there is well i've always i mean yeah i mean i've always i've always considered him a dog so yeah like we we need we inquiring minds want to know and if there is any expert in my life that i know about goofy it is my father-in-law so yes that's uh, hysterical i was not even thinking about ned bringing this up ned to the ned phone no my wife just chimed in her vote is cow or no her vote is dog no her (laughs) my wife you threw me off Hang on, just her vote is dog. She said he can't be a cow because I, cows don't have long, floppy ears. I, I well, I I think there's I, I vote dog, but I'm also recognizing that after doing some research because I did look this up after the fact, like what in the world? This is not a thing. Sure enough, right? It is a running thing of exactly what Goofy is to the point that I uh, this it's been a month or two since I went on this little you know, rabbit dog cow trail. Um, oh my God. I think it even was left at a certain point of, he's just a goofy. He's just a thing. Like it's not, he's just, yeah. he's like Gonzo. Gon- like, sure. He's yeah. Just, yeah. He's just a thing. He's, he is, <laughs> he's ain't uh, like rocket raccoon. Ain't no thing like me, except me, you know, that's like a, that's, that's a great line. That's, <laughs> that's it. Just with a, uh, just kind of with a gosh on the end. Now, right now, if you had asked me when we started this conversation, um, <laughs> that, <laughs> this would be. <laughs> we started so we, solemn, <laughs> where we would spend the vast majority of our. And time. now it's just a complete and total barfarama. Good lord, mm. yes, indeed, indeed. Oh, good lord. Okay, so I have a few uh, likes, dislikes to finish up, and then we <laughs> we can get to the theme of this film. Um, mm. So uh, I do absolutely love everything about River Phoenix's performance in this. I mean, uh, it's easy to feel some sympathy for River Phoenix, the actor, because he died so young. But, I mean, he's he's a powerhouse in this. He The the breakdown scene, when he's talking about the money. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, my 
gosh, that like he's he's incredible. And again, it's things that you're like, man, a kid wouldn't say that. But man, coming out of River Phoenix's mouth, I was like, well, no, lo- that that is absolutely what that I kid love. Would say. I love in that scene when Gordy's like, but you did take the money, or did, or he he does ask him. I can't remember if he tells him or asks him if he did. And he's like, well, yeah, I did, but nobody asked me. <laughs> <laughs> right. but that that well that scene is so heartbreaking because there's um the kids in this film have a particular relationship with their authority figures most of whom except yeah. for gordy are off screen the entire film but you know that scene to me is so heartbreaking just because that teacher takes advantage of his rep his reputation right i mean that's what yeah. happens is she no yeah because what it was is that he took the money, but then tried to return it, right. and was somehow I, I can't remember this particular detail was somehow either intercepted by the teacher or the teacher caught him trying to return it. He was trying to do the right thing. She then steals the money and allows him to continue to take the blame for it. So it's one of those I, complicated things. Gotcha. You know, my, my comprehension of it, which you might be absolutely right, my comprehension of it was she's who he turned it into, and. Instead, oh uh, no, I think you're. I think you're right. I might be melding the instead version of, in the instead of clearing his name via that action, she perpetuates the now story that he kept it, and instead she went and purchased things for herself. That's why he's so devastated. She's supposed to be the one, right? She's she's the person who's yes. supposed to do the right thing, instead of perpetuating his negative reputation. No, no, you are you are correct and I'm and I'm wrong. I was uh, melding some of the details there, but no, you're you're correct. That's uh, he turns it into her and then she instead of doing the right thing with it, steals it and allows him to continue to take the reputation for having stolen it. My last um, my last like dislike is simply with Kiefer playing chicken with the truck is are we just watching a Jack Bauer origin story? You know, it's just a low key like <laughs> Right. Oh man! Supposedly he was kind of mean to the boys on set, like to try to perpetuate. I would a little totally bit believe the, that. Yeah, to try to perpetuate a little bit of the tension between them. I do love, though. I'd be hard pressed to figure out what it means symbolically or anything. It's just a lovely moment. I love Gordy seeing the deer and not telling anybody about it. Yeah, like that's. It's just one of those. I don't know. It's just there's a lot of things in the film that just like you spoke to the believability that it just it feels real. That feels natural and normal and just something that that a kid maybe would keep to himself and um it's just yeah it, it's it's pretty great my final sort of like dislike uh oh actually i do have one more and then i have a final one so uh, we've we've already talked about the lord ass story that that whole story is iconic it's a very memorable moment of the film but one of my favorite things about the telling of that is the friend's reaction after gordy tells that story like, I love so much that when it's all over and done with, you got Teddy over there who's like, you know what he should do? He should go home and shoot his shoot his dad and then join the Texas Rangers. You know, and it's like, he wants some big graphic epic ending, you know. And then you got Vern focusing in on, like, did he pay to enter the pie-eating contest? And as as a writer myself... It drives me up the wall when, like, you put your heart and soul into a piece and you want somebody to be. So, like, how'd you feel about it? What'd you think? What'd you, and then somebody's like, you know what? I didn't like the ending because it wasn't like, it, you know, this is what how it should have ended. It should have been this, like, so awesome and amazing and epic. Or, like, somebody hones in on, like, yeah, I, that I didn't understand that one scene, like, in the very beginning. And right. I was like, oh my gosh. Why? Well, why see, it's funny because so I, I perceived that as, um, now, 
I don't know at what point this developed for King in his career, but I perceived that as a commentary on his reception to his own endings, you know, like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That probably was. Well, yeah, that probably was. I don't know where your final light is like is, but you know, you, you re-reference the, um, the truthfulness of it all. And like, I just couldn't help, but have a fondness for all of these kids. Now the, the, teen characters represented by Kiefer, at least in terms of people we know, actors we know now, but, um, you know, they're a little more uh, mustache twirlers, as it were, but... Yeah, um, yeah. But I just found such... The way the boys were written, I I know what you mean, and, and you've deflated it for your own self, and so I'm not even rebutting that, in terms of would a kid say this, but... I found something really lovely about, I didn't feel like these characters linguistic skills were above their station. I felt in fact, this feels very truthful for what was a different era of how we related to each other, which was actual conversation, you know, like Uh, these kids each have a very established point of view and, and have likes that they bring to the table, whether it's baseball or, comic books or cartoons or whatever like they 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 feel very lived and real and so the way they talk to each other has this very kind of lovely relational quality to it that was just really sure yeah no i i i can get on board with that i i agree with that um my my final like dislike is kind of a two-parter i'm actually gonna just mention in passing that the scene where the boys finally find the body, understated it is as it is, is just remarkably powerful uh, to me. Uh, particularly, say that again. W- I'm sorry. The scene where the boys finally find the body, the oh. Roy Bauer, the Roy yeah, Brower body, yeah. um, understated as it is, it's remarkably powerful, particularly for its effect on Gordy and his thoughts about his brother. Yeah. Um, but my final likes, to, my final like dislike was just the. I do love the final line of the film and the final line of the film is not spoken it's it's written and you have to uh, you have to read it it's the final line that gordy writes in his because the the premise of this entire piece is that an adult gordy has read the news about his friend chris who was played by river phoenix um having died while trying to break up a bar fight and so he reads about the death of his friend, and that prompts him to write about this summer when he and his three other friends, including Chris, went to try to find this body that they heard about. And uh, his he's the final sort of moments of the film. Gordy is finishing his story, and I just love he just he he writes down. I'm going to quote this exactly as it is, as it's on the thing. He writes down. He says, "I never had any friends later on." like the ones I had when I was 12. And then he writes, Jesus, does anyone? Mm. And uh, I just, I don't know. I I really was very taken with that um, with that sentiment. Uh, and, it, and it honestly carries a tremendous amount of power sure. uh, to it. So that's my, that's my final like dislike. Uh, so I, I have something that I want to talk about. What's interesting, I don't know if you wrote down any scares, but I'm, I'm anticipating yes. in this, Okay, well, uh, I'm going to let you have at it, because I'm like, this is non-horror material, so I don't know if we're going to have many scares as it is. Uh, well, I've got two here, but the one that most pings in terms of scares, Reed, Reed, give me a break. You were about to bypass the leeches? Come on. I know. What? 
<laughs> just like, leeches. Not just leeches, but leeches on the kiddo's junk, man. Come on. Yeah, no, what? it's awful. That uh, it's ain't awful. right. <laughs> That, ain't that right. poor kid. That ain't oh my gosh! Like that's yeah, that ain't like right. you 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 feel your own, especially if you're a man watching that scene. You 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 just like cringe. Oh my god, this poor child. Like it's terrible. Yeah. And the yeah. blood, the blood, yeah. and the poor kid just. Pow- oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that was rough. yeah. It's pretty awful. Um, and yeah, then it's, awful. it's definitely far lower down the rung in terms of uh sort of just visceral you know stuff is the train track i, I mean i think the the, tra- yeah, the yeah. train sequence is pretty intense i won't disagree with you that it always makes me a little bit nervous even knowing they make it their reactions are so strong and uh yeah it's it, it's it's a pretty harrowing sequence yeah yeah i do i do love that of course you knew when they started to cross the bridge like what's going to happen if we have a fun? you knew a train was coming like there's there's no way that they start across that bridge and just make it across with no well lest we forget complication. you are prescient you know so like you i can, predict all the things right 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 I do. I do. You could have um, you could have warned me about 2016 November, okay? Like you could have given a brother a heads up and just You know, I I had eaten some special cookies that somebody baked for me. They, uh, <laughs> I was crying, they gave, okay? They gave, you know, they gave me a very, very strange reaction. Right, right. So, uh I wrote something down da- I wrote something down for theme on this that uh there were it's kind of a two-part thing. The first part is just a quote that I'll uh reference back in a minute. But when they were talking, when Gordy's writing about their experience sitting around the campfire, he says, everything was there and around us. We knew exactly who we yes. were and where we were going, uh, which is such a, a lovely line to think about these boys in this particular station in life. But can I, isn't there a final tag there too? Doesn't it say, and it was grand? Yes. Oh yeah. I yeah. didn't write it down, but he says, and it was grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I found uh, really compelling and moving in this particular instance of uh, watching the film to the bullies the mustache twirling teens the body of of Roy Brower is nothing but leverage it's just something that they're going to uh, sort of leverage to uh, get famous notoriety and that's how it begins for our four main kids but the major difference is is that when our main kids see him, they see him for what he is, which is a dead a dead boy, like a dead body. Right. Um, and this is a direct, it's, it's in the film, but it, the direct quote from, a, a version of this is in the film, but the direct quote from the book is, it just says, the kid was dead, the kid wasn't sick, the kid wasn't sleeping, the kid wasn't going to get up in the morning anymore or catch poison ivy, or wear out the eraser end of his Ticonderoga number two during a hard math test. The kid was dead. And the directness of that language really uh, bowled me over a little bit. Uh, Just the coming into an awareness of their own mortality and coming into an understanding of just, just confronting death for the first time and something that uh, I'm still, I'm, I'm still on the railroad tracks of trying to process all of this, but it does shake me a bit. The ways in which just in thinking of, we spoke for, you know, a good almost a half hour at the top of the episode about 
uh, you know, King's essay on guns and, and, uh, some of the recent tragedies that have hit our country and there, and unfortunately they no longer can accurately be considered a rarity anymore. But this moment when these kids find this dead body and suddenly it's no longer the, I'm going to describe it the way I feel it. It's so it's no longer the creepy, cool thing. It is this weighty, it's got a magnitude to it and causes, uh, it forces Gordy to sort of come to terms with the loss of his brother, who was played by John Cusack, and you learn very early in the film, had died in a uh, uh, car accident. But mm-hmm. it forces him to come to terms with how he really feels about his brother's absence and about his brother's loss. And the film to me is really about that transition, not just from innocence into maturity, because they don't just magically become mature having seen a dead body, but that that specific moment where it all just becomes real, that specific moment where you just sort of are confronted with this cold reality of you're not invincible and and how that can make you feel about the friends in your life, the the place where you live, uh, the way you navigate it. It just really, I don't know, it, it, it just really moved me tremendously thinking about that and the way in which, like you said, it, it sort of tiptoes up to sugary sweet and... I do feel like there's a tremendous gravity in things like that last line. Like I never had any friends like the ones I had when I was 12, you know? And, uh, and I think there is something about that moment when everything about your perspective changes that, uh, bonds you to the people around you and, uh, that connects you to them in ways that maybe you didn't even know were possible. And maybe frankly didn't, didn't even want, but uh, it it kind of opens your eyes a little bit and it kind of just makes you, it forces you to move beyond the place where, as is said earlier, we knew exactly who we were and where we were going. It moves you beyond that place into something a bit more frightening and a bit less knowable, uh, perhaps completely unknowable. And that's just the, the future that lies ahead of you. And... Uh, I don't know. King is very good at expressing in ways far better than I'm summarizing right here, but King is very good at expressing in his fiction that moment where everything in that person's life is going to be before this and after this. Mm -hmm. And he's just really good at capturing not only the expression of those moments, but the feelings behind those moments. Sure. And, um, and, uh, And we're all we're all going through a very volatile time right now. Like there are people throughout this country, people throughout the world who are just, uh, I mean like struggling with things and facing things that are completely beyond comprehension from what I, you know, would have thought or from what I was exposed to when I was a child. And that's the thing that just sort of boggles me as I, I look back as a, like when I was growing up, I'm like, did the, going back to our dark conversation, like, did the world just change, or was it always like this, and I'm the one that changed? Like, mm. uh, like it feels so crazy looking around at all of this, and and that that's the part, honestly, kind of like last week. I don't have some big profound thesis statement, but just uh, 
really bowled me over that moment when, uh, you know, they finally see it and they don't see him as leverage anymore. They don't see him as, um, you know, a pawn in their ultimate scheme. They see him as, uh, as a dead boy, as, uh, you know, a body and, uh, and how it changes everything. And, uh, that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about this, uh, delightful little film stand by me. Well, and it's interesting because I think I couldn't, I'm going to use the building blocks you've given me and hopefully construct something as well here. And that's, I couldn't shake the very on the nose metaphor that I don't know if a different stage of life me would have as readily been able to see. And that's that we are all walking towards our own shared mortality, our own shared woundedness, our own shared glory. And it's all wrapped up together. And I think that because, because there's a way that I don't think the movie does this, but there's a way you could perceive a sort of nihilistic intellectualizing that happens to them upon this newfound sort of experience and knowledge of death. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh my gosh, everything is now somber and, hard and and i didn't know it'd be like this kind of thing sure versus i think i think i think there's a way the best um my wife has been reading a lot of books lately about that i'm gonna use this phrase i don't know if it's an actual genre but it's like death memoir like Mm. so and so has a terminal illness and is writing their story that stuff like that, that on the one hand uh, you could say is a bit morbid. On the other hand, you could say, well, you host a podcast about terribly horrific things. (laughs) Check, (laughs) check made. You got me. Um, (laughs) But the point being what I'm trying to go there is there's, there's a significance to walking through life when, with an acute sense of our own mortality, there's a, there's a value and importance. I actually thought about this on Dark last week with the character Adam, his his re, his kind of rejection of his own mortality and how that has disfigured him in and of itself. Yeah, but, right. but I think I think what's beautiful about the film Stand by Me is the only thing missing from these boys' experience and journey is carrying that awareness with them on the path they take. Um, uh, yeah. And I think the, the best life we can live is constantly knowing and being aware and recognizing mortality feels a little hallmarky, but I'll, I'll shout out, uh, Blake Collier and the, it's been a while since I've read it. So apologies if I get some of if the details are hazy, but I think you'd be okay because it's out there in the world. Blake wrote a beautiful piece in as a sort of personal eulogy for the passing of his grandmother. And oh, I remember yeah. reading this piece and, and, and he interweaves in it just this idea about the necessity of death and not in mm. this, not in this shrouded uh, cloudy, it's all mystical and hazy and we're not going to know anything. And isn't that sad kind of way, but in this, the knowledge of this thing is the only thing that makes life able to be lived most more fully. And so mm. where I'm going with that is 
I think what's so beautiful to me about Stand By Me is, you know, absent that little piece, is it's it's this relational dynamic, this real, true relational dynamic that is just illustrative of our own journeys towards what will ultimately be full knowledge. Yeah. Full, yeah. full knowledge and full experience. I don't know if I'm making a ton of sense here, but I want to lace into this as well before I, I mean, exhaust what I've got written down here. One thing that I love uh, that I wrote thematically, but kind of works as a, as a congealing agent here too, is I loved the scene, the moment, the phrase skin it when Chris is challenging Teddy after they've fought. Yeah. You remember yeah. This? They've, they've, they've had a bit of a confrontation. <clears throat> I don't exactly remember over what, but You've seen it before in the film, but Chris holds out his hand and they've got this little code they use and he says, skin right. it. And right. meaning, you know, effectively a, a, a rub across each other's hand, a, a slow down, high five type idea. And it feels dumb to highlight that, but I just loved it. I loved the codes we develop for forgiveness and mm. like this dumb little out of context means nothing, but between these loving peers was a means of grace, right? It yeah, was a, it was a indeed. way it was yeah. a way of recognizing I've harmed you or you've harmed me. We need to be able to come together as brothers once more, as kindred once more, as faithful followers once more. Skin it like this. This is our means of recognizing culpability and forgiveness. Let's do this. Yeah. And so yeah. I, ju I just think I fell in love with just the journey of these characters and watching their, and, and you know, it's, it's, I don't mean to put us on this weird pestle here and, and I'm not saying it sentimentally, but you and I have, have shorthand and code and, and, and me right, means right. of grace betwixt each other that translate more than the, the mere syllables and phrases that are actually uttered. Right. Right. You know, oh, and, and, yeah, and that's, that's relationship that is you know being able to and and i i've got enough of that hopeful sob spirit to me to kind of reject the final line of this film not because i don't mm. think it's lovely mm. but because i do think that's um when you're 12 when you're 11 when 12 13 when you're in those formative years that's when it's easiest and, and, and life has most propped up a, a, a scenario in which relationship can develop, i.e. we're all in this shared space together of school or of neighborhood or of whatever. So, right. so friendship comes more naturally. But I do kind of reject the notion that it can never not be that way at other stages of life. The hard sure. part, the hard part is the work, right? Like those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely. There are times when... You know, we, we, we had a parting of ways with a church we attended for many years along at this point, it feels like a long time ago, but I still look back at that and I'm like, man, it was such an easy space for community generation. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and, you know, you, you could make a reasonable case. Well, you're not going to have the love, the depth of friendship with all those people. Yeah, sure. I get that. But in terms of just shared experience in a communal setting, it see it fit that bill. The point I'm simply trying to make is I think these types of relationships can occur outside of our 12 year old selves 
they just require right. so much giving and, and energy and that's hard and, and it, that takes work and that takes time and that takes energy that just sometimes we don't have but i'm kind of going all over the yeah. place the broader point is simply i love the metaphor i love the imagery of beloveds who have encoded within their relationships means of grace and understanding and comprehension and support and uplifting moving yeah. towards the shared experience of death i mean that's really what yeah. this film is <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And the reason it, ta- I mean, uh, to, to, sorry for prattling the... on for a minute there. I was trying to find my, no, <laughs> don't apologize. No, don't apologize for that. That, but the, I do think that it is possible. I, I, I amen that wholeheartedly and it does take more work. And I think part of that is because, and I'm going to use some phrasing that I'm going to just call out as being pithy and maybe doesn't fully work and doesn't fully apply. But the reason it takes more work is because now you've got to kind of get over the body. Now, like huh. you've got you yeah. that you've got to kind of get over what you've seen that changed everything, or what happened that changed everything, um, because it's so effortless for them. They're sitting around a campfire and they know who they are and they know where they're going, and it's grand. <laughs> it's so funny. And, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that campfire scene. I remember watching it, being like. Damn, that looks awesome. That looks fun. <laughs> right, right, right. I know. Being a kid was great. <laughs> Being a kid was so great. I was as a kid again. You know, like and so like and that's but that's the thing is because you've got to kind of get over uh what you've seen and what you've learned. In the novel or in the novella, uh one of the final moments is um he actually goes back, Gordy goes back to Castle Rock. And he sees Ace again, and uh, Ace is the is the Kiefer character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sees him again, and in the in the seeing, he has this sort of epiphany of recognizing that he truly has sort of left the past behind him. Like he truly has sort of healed and moved on from the pain that he experienced in his childhood. And I think that's the as we're saying, I don't want to beat it, beat a dead body, but, but like far too soon. Um, but that's, I mean, that's, that's what we're getting at. That's what, that's what takes the work and those, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stem back to it. Um, perhaps as a final word from me, that doesn't mean it has to be our final word, but, uh, perhaps as a final word from me, uh, like I'll stem back to that article about the recent, occurrence and uh, the 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 path to healing i love and i'm going to try very clumsily to meld those two ideas um the shorthand codes for forgiveness that we develop and the ways in which an entire community of people can choose grace to fuel the healing process rather than rage and anger and just doing the work to create a shorthand for forgiveness a uh like I remember, and I don't remember where or in what book, but I remember C.S. Lewis had written about forgiveness. He said, if you want to, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have the quote, and I don't even remember what book it came from. I just know that C.S. Lewis is the one that had written the sentiment. And he said, if you want to learn how to forgive, you'd better not start with the Nazis. And just talking about how not only does forgiveness take work, but it also takes like like progressive right, effort. Right, it's a, like, mus- it's a muscle. Yeah, and you start exercising it in small ways. You don't start by trying to forgive the people who have perpetrated terrible things against you. You start by forgiving the annoying people around you or the people that would otherwise frustrate you and forgiving them 
and letting that go and not letting those build and develop. That's those shorthands to forgiveness. And that's the ways we can get back to that place where we do experience something of the degree of sitting around that campfire and just and, and, and developing richer relationships. You know, as much as I praised the last line of that film, Nathan, I thought of us. And I was like, I didn't have a friendship like like the one we have when I was twelve. I had some sure. good friends, and 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 I remember it. But it's just different, you know. Like we're not even in the same space and can't go to the movies and hang out because we're on differing parts of the country. But in terms of just the depth of interaction and the depth of connection, right? Um, you know, like it is it is possible. It takes some work and it sure. takes some 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 dedication and some commitment to it, but. But it is possible and, and in the possibilities, uh, very richly rewarding. And uh, I don't want to lose sight of that, that secondary component you introduced about just developing those shorthands to forgiveness and those shorthands to intentional grace um, that you uh, extend to one another. And, and uh, getting, getting over the body as leverage is hard, but it is possible and is uh, incredibly worthwhile. Well, and I think for me, just you know, just a profound takeaway here is just like, we're all going to end there and there might be an inglorious creek bed where our, our whereabouts become small town murmuring. We may, we're all going to end in some version of there. And so what that says to me is what then are we going to do now? And I know it, and that this is easy for me to talk. You know, we're spun up right now. We record episodes back to back. This is the second of two. Like we're in it. Right. Daily, right, right, daily, right. minute to minute living is hard to to keep this conscious and aware and awake to. But that's what it speaks to me. It's like okay, if if ultimately this is where we're all headed, which I don't mean as a nihilistic, you know, defeatist sure. thing. I mean as a right, right, that right, right. that truth exists what i can take away from you know Vern and teddy and chris and gordy is you tell jokes you laugh you love each other you support each other you lift each other up you play with each other you, you yeah encourage each other you you help each other through those hard spaces um you, right. you remind right. each other of your inherent worth and dignity you forgive each other and you extend grace to each other. Like that is the nature of fruitful, positive, worthwhile human engagement. And yeah, things, absolutely. things that don't quite sync up with that are left by the wayside. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. And I only have uh, I only have one final thought to express with that. Cause I, I yeah, uh, sincerely, I think that's a, a really, really powerful and prominent takeaway. My only other, uh, my only other sort of thought is that you know just when when the night has come and and the land is is dark I knew you were building to a joke and I'm like where is he going that's and this the is a... the moon is is the only light we'll see but I I won't be afraid oh no, I won't I won't be afraid just as long as you stand the darling darling stand my 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 wife and all my kids are out of the house so i did not hold back i I love how when you start to sing (laughs) it's not always words that come out sometimes it's (laughs) 
sometimes <laughs> it's just it's just the tone. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like wow. Oh, okay. All well, right. Well, sometimes that's just uh, my commitment phobic nature where I'm not 100% sold on know, knowing the words, so but I know the tune and so you can just sort of you can punch punch the notes out how, however crudely and and you know off key they are, but that's true. Um, that's true. We gotta have Ned on to talk about what Goofy is. He should do a little bit, yeah. a little segment. He should. He should. He should. Uh, we're but gonna, it, but we're it becomes this meta commentary about him just talking about things he thinks is funny. Like Ned, what's Goofy? Like it's like. Bah, 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 <laughs> well, this week I thought, George. oh, such and such was Goofy, and I saw it, and it made me laugh, and that's what's Goofy this week. You know, like I could just see a whole <laughs> bit. That's great. Oh, <laughs> oh man we so, gotta we gotta uh, go to the fog meter let's do this real quick we do right. we do on the okay, fog meter so. we discuss every film or you know just whatever we want to on a metric of fear how scary a thing is and god how substantive a thing is so on the uh subject of fear read um if i may go ahead Indeed. um i will give uh an appropriate two to stand okay. by me um only because Indeed. because the thought of leeches on my junk uh is mm, is an, mm. is enough and two feels appropriate in that context <laughs> okay yes 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 um so so i'm going to i'm going to join you with i'm going to join you with that too uh, because <laughs> so uh yeah because i mean honestly this is i mean this entire series is going to be low on the fog meter because they're the specifically non horror material on the fear meter yeah on the scare but the substance the substance uh the the god meter that we're now discussing i am going to give stand by me man i'm, I'm going to give it an eight I, I think there's a lot here there's a lot of just uh rich moments not just and that's just not my affection for it uh, which is high. Uh, I do think there's a lot of like rich moments that point to things that are bigger, and I think there's a lot of substance there. Well, Reed, like uh, like le- leeches on some junk. I'm gonna get real close to you here, and I'm gonna join you nope. at an eight. Oh boy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Not sure I'm fond of that analogy. Um, <laughs> I thought about saying I was going to stand by you, but I just couldn't, I couldn't take, I couldn't, you know, let that opportunity pass. So, you know. Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. It's just a complete, complete and total barfarama. People are going to think I went to the Ren Fair and ate some pot cookies, (laughs) but I've never had pot in my life. Just FYI. I I haven't, I haven't either. It's a five y'all. Like the fog meter is a five, uh, for, (laughs) for stand, for stand by me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's a five out of ten. But listen, I mean, we've made a lot of jokes. We've had some heavy conversation. We've had some laughter. Uh, but listen, do we recommend Stand By Me to people? Like, should they seek this film out? I mean, I I recommend it. I don't know if you're going to stand by oh me my and gosh. recommend it alongside me. I must, I must stand right by you. I must stand too close for comfort. Okay. Right there. Like a, by, right there like by a leech. You. Right. That's what, like, I was, that's what I was saying. Right, right there. Right up on you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, right, right there. So, um, so yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand by Nathan. <laughs> no, it's lucky, lucky, stand <laughs> no. by me. Yeah, we just got, we got to end it right there. Just skin it. We Take just, us out. Yes. Okay. So here. What it are is. we doing next well, week? Do we know? Yes, we know. Oh, next we? week. Okay. 
Next, next week, it's the return of Arnold. He'll be back. But this time, not as the Terminator, not as the Predator. He's coming back as the Running Man. So, ladies and gentlemen, written unbelievably by Stephen King under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, check out 1987's The Running Man, and we will see you on hashtag Different Seasons next week. Nathan, Reed. thank you so much You're for welcome. everything. I thank appreciate you for standing it. by me through all of this crazy three years. Likewise, my friend. See you next Bye. week. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.